What's up, Lions of Liberty fans? You can now support this show on Patreon and get exclusive access to bonus audio and video content, including Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, bonus segments with guests, and so much more. Head on over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to Felony Friday, which of course is a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Felony Friday focuses on the broken criminal justice system. Every week we focus on exposing that injustice in that system. This is one of actually four shows that we have on Lions of Liberty. We have our Monday show. Every Monday, we kick off the week with our flagship program hosted by Mark Clare. Mark interviews leaders in the Liberty Movement. He hosts roundtable discussions. Every Tuesday, we have our newest show, a temporary show called Candidates of Liberty, where we interview libertarian candidates. Our first show was with Laura Epke. Go back and check that out. Second show just this past Tuesday was with Roger Barris. So check that one out too. Every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land, hosted by Brian McWilliams, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. And this past Wednesday's episode was phenomenal. It was with the always hilarious and funny and entertaining and unpredictable Owen Benjamin. So if you missed that, go back in your podcast feed and check that one out, guys. Now you're going to want to make sure to subscribe on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, Podcast Addict, wherever you get your podcasts. I don't care where you get your podcasts. Just hit that subscribe button. Please do it. It's important to us. It helps us spread this show. It helps us to reach a wider audience, especially with that Apple podcast that helps the algorithm there. And of course, if you have an extra minute, please give us a five-star rating and leave us a review as well. Very much appreciated. Now today's show, I'm going to introduce my guest in a minute. I do want to say this is a little bit shorter show today. So I do have a little bit of a, a rant at the end. I want to talk about the prisoner strike. So prisoners prisoners have gone on strike nationwide. I want to talk about the reasons behind that, why they're doing it, and what I think about it. I'm going to talk about that after the interview. Um, the interview today, you can find notes uh, talking about that interview, linking to everything we discuss. You can find that at lionsofliberty.com slash FF138. Let's get rolling with today's show. My guest today on Felony Friday is Ashley Hunter. Ashley is the community liaison for Blueprints for Addiction Recovery. And uh, if you've been paying attention and listening, listening to the last couple episodes, of course, a uh, recent guest I had on here, Chris Dreisbach, he's the founder of Blueprints. So that's how I met Ashley. Ashley is a felon who uh, made some mistakes earlier in her life, but since then she's uh, made her way through the justice system and is now working for uh, positive change and, of course, working for Blueprints. So, Ashley, welcome to Felony Friday. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well, doing well. Thanks for asking and uh, thanks for coming on the show and sharing your story here with the uh, Felony Friday audience. Uh, first, a good place to start, I think. I like to ask my guests really 
about the earlier part of their life, really what their life was like maybe before some of their struggles or run-ins with the criminal justice system. So what, what was your, your youth like? Where did you grow up? What was that like for you? Um, my childhood was, was great. Um, my parents were never married, so I was always separated going to mom, going to dad. Um, as far as being a kid, I was, I was happy for the most part. Um, I felt just maybe a little less than cause, uh, pretty much I was this girl that lived in a trailer park behind a strip club. And that's pretty much how I felt like just a little, you know, less than didn't have as much as other people. So I just felt just mildly unhappy, but for the most part, I had a great job. Did you grow up in Pennsylvania? Yes, I am from Bucks County. So that's where I was born and raised. Um, I don't live there now. I live in New York, Pennsylvania, but that's where I was raised. Okay, so you grew up in this uh, in this this setting where you felt a little bit a little bit less than, as as you put it. Um, yeah. Did did this uh, lead you down a a certain a certain path? Um, you think, or what, what 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 got you into? You know, I know you you had a couple uh, runs with the law, right? So what what got yeah. you what got you down that path? Do you think? Well, in in my belief, I feel like uh, addiction has has been passed down to me <laughs> through my family. Um, I know my mother struggled with addiction as well as um, my father currently. So, I kind of feel like it was just passed down to me. You said addiction uh, was passed down to you. What was your first experience with with drugs and or alcohol? Um, drugs and alcohol pretty much came to me in um, like an experimental type thing in my youth. Um, you know, of course, smoking marijuana, drinking, um, obtaining those things early on. I would say about like 14, 15 years old, mm -hmm. I started doing with those things. You were obviously started off, started off experimenting you know, when did it become a problem? When did, when did you, or when did this lead to uh, some of the, uh, the issues where you ended up in trouble with the law? Sure. So pretty much um, I successfully um, like drank and, you know, smoked marijuana um, for a couple of years. And then I remember I had my wisdom teeth taken out. Um, I forget how old it was. I want to say um, 18, 19 years old prescribed um, an opiate pain medication. And I absolutely loved what it did for me. And I sought that out. And that's where the new page turned. And that's what led me into harder drugs. So did you, did you know somebody where you could get those, those opioids or, I mean. Yeah, I had friends around me. Um, I had uh, people that I knew that had dabbled in that. So it was very easy and accessible for me because I had those friends, mm -hmm. those people, same things that I did except they did it on another level and I wanted to get there. So. So, and how old were you during this, this point in your life? About. I'm like, I'm 29 now. So I'm trying to like think, <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to say, um, 18, 19 years old, right after I got out of high school, um, and started going to community college is when everything really took off. So I want to say like 2008. When you say really took off, so what, what, what happened next? So I continued to buy um, opiate medication off of people, um, Percocets, and um, I ended up spending more and more money on those things. Um, I ended up taking way too much, um, just ended up spending hundreds of dollars every single day to fuel that habit. 
ended up dropping out of college. Like literally I would have had one more semester to go and I would have been done. Um, but I gave it all up because it was interfering with the time that I needed to obtain the drug. And did, did you realize at the time at all what you were doing or was the addiction just took a hold? I, I think in the back of my mind, I knew what I was doing, but I just loved that feeling so much. I wanted to chase that more than I wanted to continue doing normal things in life that other people do. Mm-hmm. Uh, did this drive you to, uh, you know, the one thing you have in your record is uh, stealing, right? Or- yeah, I was uh, um, a very big person into like theft. <laughs> that was like my big thing. Um, I do not have any violent crimes or drug crimes. Um, thankfully I was never caught with drugs on me, but I did, uh, catch some charges and, uh, was stealing things from department stores, uh, two different department stores I was stealing from, uh, I had gotten arrested and charged with, and I had obtained a debit card that, um, had a pin number on it. And I just went and took that money out. So, and it wasn't mine. I did get charged with uh, theft by unlawful taking and then two retail. How did you get, I mean, was it ever, was it hard for you to, to steal the first time? Was it something that came easily? Was it something you saw other people do and it was just like a peer pressure thing or how did you get to um, that start? I always, um, when I was younger, I would like steal makeup, I think from department stores. So I had like sense of, I didn't really care. So um, I wasn't afraid to do it. I guess you would say I had that mentality. I also did have somebody that I was using with. And at the time I had obtained these retail thefts, I had switched over from opiate use to heroin use. So that's when it really took off and I needed money as fast as I could. Um, And I had somebody else that I pretty much ran with that we were a team together in this. So So what would be for a drug addict? Why would a drug addict switch from opioids to heroin is it ease of access is it less expensive what's yeah so at this time um you know prescription pain medication was a little hard to come by and also for one individual pill was about 25 30 dollars and um heroin actually cost uh ten dollars um, and one will do it, at least at that time for me until I, I guess, more of a tolerance and had to spend more and more money. But the difference from spending 25 to $30 to $10, it was just, for me, it was like a, a no brainer. It had the same effects. And so that's what I went with. So when you were arrested and convicted, you ended up on probation, right? Um, yes. Did they put you in any sort of treatment or? Um, no, actually. None of the officers that I ran into um, asked me if I needed treatment or help. Um, they, I mean, they were nice to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that was, that was a nice thing. Um, they were really nice to me, but the help wasn't offered. It was, um, it was my mother and my family that kind of stepped in and knew that I needed treatment. Um, my mom knew because she had been in treatment herself uh, a very, very long time ago. So it wasn't the law enforcement or justice system that actually aided me to get into recovery. Now, did the just, do you think the justice system hindered your way towards recovery in in any way? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been to three treatments. Um, The first treatment I went to, um, I just knew it would look good when I showed up in court. At least I knew I needed to be sober to change what I was doing. Um, It would look good on paper. 
if I went into court and showed that I completed a program. The program itself, though, I mean, I know you're going in with this mentality just to get it done. Do you think yeah. if you had had a different mindset, it would have been, it would have helped you? Or was it, it just was sort of just like a paper, you know, paper program that. At that time, I really didn't, um, I had no idea what being sober or recovery was about. I just wanted to um, just get all the drugs out of my system and see how life went from there. Um, at that time, I didn't believe I had a drinking problem either. So I wasn't willing to like, <laughs> you know, get sober and not drink. Um, later on, I found out that the drink led me right back to the drugs. So I just kind of had to get that idea out of my mind. But uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really know what recovery was about. Didn't want to really be sober partially. Mm-hmm. So what, uh, what was it in your life that happened that, you know, made that change, made you want to be sober and get committed to recovery? So what made me want to get sober, um, it wasn't, it wasn't really for myself. It was for my family at first. Um, My second treatment, I was uh, put into a treatment center in Lancaster County. And I actually um, decided to do something different after I left treatment. And I went to um, a to live with other women that were looking to stay sober and participate in a program and actually try to achieve long-term sobriety. So that was something different that I tried. And as soon as I left that treatment center and started creating a network of, of sober people, it just kind of came naturally to me. I was like, this isn't so bad, you know? Mm-hmm. So in your, in your experience, now you're working for blueprints, obviously, so what types of things do you take from from your own experience and then try to try to use to help other people? So what worked for me was was just getting into um an inpatient program. I needed that break. Um I couldn't really put the drugs down on my own. I definitely needed some type of, you know, medical detox and you know, get that type of therapy and and get myself set up for a future that would be living a um i also suggest to people um to not just go to a detox don't just go to um a rehab and then just go back to your life and and just try and figure this out on your own i totally believe in participating in like the continuum of care um which i see other people at you know at blueprints where i work um those people are suggested and and complete the continuum of care. And that means, you know, after leaving rehab, you know, you want to participate in, in group therapy, individual therapy, as long as you can, and uh, try and pick up those tools that you need to stay sober and and get a network, get some direction on where to go. So that's what I try and convince people, you know, it is people that are, that are addicts um, when they're in that state of mind, been there, I know how it feels, but that's what I try to convey. The cannabis industry has rapidly expanded. For those liberty lovers who want to take advantage of this growing industry, they've been met with a flood of government taxes and regulation. 
a lot of cannabis companies would just love to hire a full-time CFO, but that could be super, super expensive. But what if you could have the knowledge and experience of this full-time CFO at a fraction of the cost. If you're in the cannabis business or you plan on entering the fray, then you need to schedule a free consultation with the Grow CFO, Rachel Kennerly. The Grow CFO will help to maximize cost of goods sold deductions by employing accrual and cost accounting, creating tax savings and improving cash flow. They will keep your books in an audit-ready state. If you or someone you know is either already in the cannabis industry or thinking about jumping in the fray, go to thegrowcfo.com and schedule a free consultation today. So how did you first come across uh, Chris and, and Blueprints for Addiction Recovery? So Chris, I came across, um, actually met him in Lancaster before any uh, Blueprints was even a thing. Um, I met Chris, um, we went to, um, programs like for Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I had seen him, um, working with other gentlemen, you know, sponsoring them, getting, you know, watching men get sober around him. So I just knew Chris, um, in that area. So we were both doing the same thing. And I would say that was 2013, 2014 is when I met Chris. And then when, when Chris founded Blueprints, did you... Did you start then or how did you become uh, become involved? Um, I knew Chris had started Blueprints and I know in, in the very early on stages, um, you know, I found out, you know, he was starting Blueprints and everything. But I actually, I didn't start at Blueprints until I think November, this past November, I started at Blueprints and uh, Chris just reached out to me. I was, I was a waitress at Olive Garden, just kind of like just making it by and he actually came up to me and, and asked me if I would like to join the Blueprints team. And I absolutely love it. It's the greatest thing. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I think I met you for the first time. First time I met, I met Chris also was up at uh, the Johnstown event. Um, yeah. And when uh, mm-hmm. Dale was speaking there. And uh, mm-hmm. those are such such great events. Um, mm-hmm. There's been like 19 or 20 of them, right? And I, th- I think the final number was 18 because we did um, make a couple more stops that we added to. Mm-hmm the stops along the way we added some at the end, but yeah, I was, I was the behind the scenes person organizing all that stuff. And it was a really, really great experience to get to meet people in different communities to see what they were doing. Mm-hmm. So, so, so what was, uh, I guess, um, the goal of those events, it's obviously, you know, community outreach, but like, mm-hmm. could you give an example of like something that would maybe, what would come from that where, um, someone would get, would get help? Would they appro- approach you directly, approach Blueprints directly, then you connect them or, or how would that work? I'm pretty, I, so I think of my job title is just like bridging the community and Blueprints together. Um, so I am that person um, that would, you know, tell you about our program and um, talk to somebody about just some different things we can do within the community to help improve access to treatment. Um, so I would say like, that's pretty much my role. Um, I don't really deal much with like clients directly. Um, I'm not, like, you know, a therapist or anything like that, but I just kind of get out there and, um, I get to explain what blueprints is about. So. Okay. That makes sense. So mm-hmm. obviously you got to hear, uh, Dale Kern speak, right. And, uh, and, yes. and this show you're on here, Lines of Liberty, it's a, it's a libertarian show. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. I'm curious, has your, has your view, um, Obviously, you've experienced sort of the 
the, with the war on drugs and how that's affected you directly. Um, mm-hmm. Has your view changed over over time towards the war on drugs? Um, did you have a view? Has has Dale Kearns and anything he's said has that had an impact on the way you look at um, really the, the the war on drugs and how it impacts communities throughout Pennsylvania? Yeah. Or? Absolutely. Um, ever since I met Dale, um, pretty much he has expanded like my thought process as far as like the war on drugs because I never really paid attention to the problem as a whole. If that makes sense, I was dig myself out of that hole. Um, so talking with Dale and seeing his view on the war on drugs and and how much money is being poured into that and like absolutely no problem has been solved at all. And it's it's amazing to see that um, people still think the war on drugs is is worth funding and and proceeding because uh, I don't see any new results. If anything, I see a lot of people around and still falling, still stumbling and falling into addiction and and crime and all that. Right. And I mean, you can look to yourself at your own experience. Um, And, you know, a lot of people look at look at addicts and they'll say, you know, those addicts are just they're stealing and they're never going to get better. Mm -hmm. Um, It's sad that people have that viewpoint. And I, I don't know if that where that comes from, if they've just just it's just been ingrained in them they've been raised that way to think that the really the only way to solve this problem which it's not being solved no one's being helped is to mm-hmm. you know through imprisonment and incarceration and and, uh, and penalizing people um it's it's just amazing that more people don't just see well what if we could just help people what if you know communities could actually help people get sober and then become mm-hmm. you know, successful and valuable and contributors to, to uh, society. And then they would, if, if they're not addicted to drugs, they're not stealing anymore. They're not doing those things. It's such a, a backwards yeah. way to, uh, to look at the world, but absolutely. I'm on my yeah. soapbox. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I definitely think, um, you know, the view is like communities um, coming together and trying to, to get people that are suffering from addiction help is just a better approach to things instead of letting all these like rules and laws on, on a broader spectrum solve the problem. Um, I believe in my case, um, you know, I did deserve some type of punishment. Um, I paid lots of money. I've paid all those fines back and, <laughs> and uh, you know, paid to be on probation, you know, paid thousands and thousands of dollars, um, you know, for my wrongdoings. And to still be stamped with that, that felony level, you know, it's just. Yeah, how, how much, how much of an issue has that been for you? The felon label, um, what's been the biggest obstacle with that label? I only had um, one really big obstacle. Of course, I, I worked in the restaurant business and I, I didn't check the box. And uh, <laughs> so I pretty much, you know, I got to be a good employee. I didn't steal from that employer. I showed up every day and I was a hard worker. So I proved myself. And um, I did apply for another job to, you know, increase my pay and, and just try and branch out. And um, I applied for that job. And I did not know, actually, that I had a felony. This wasn't until uh, last year. because Wait, you didn't know you had one? I did not. I did not know that I had a felony. I'm late. I have a felony three, which I guess is like uh, the lowest felony I guess you can have. Um so I thought I was being charged with just misdemeanor charges this whole time. And I guess um, from what I gather, 
there's like a third strike, you know, thefts. And then the, I guess on the third one, you get the, uh, the old felony charge. And I just, I, I didn't know that it wasn't explained to me in the court system. Um, you know, I don't know if I had like, I had a public defender, so I feel like things weren't explained to me, um, as best as they could have been. Well, I actually did not know I had a felony for the longest time until I got my background check. Um, you know, I received the paperwork in the mail and, and looked at it and I got denied that job. And, uh, yeah, from then on, I just, I didn't know I had a felony and now I do. So is, is that type of, or do you know if that type of felony three is one that can be expunged over time or? Um, actually I'm, I'm not quite sure. Um, I, I mean, I imagine it's approaching that, um, seven or eight year, um, I guess there's a gap of time where that would show up on paperwork when applying. So I believe it should be not visible at this time, if not next year for myself. Um, you know, thankfully Chris got me a job working for him at blueprints. And I told him, I was like, Hey, I, I have a felony. I didn't know about, but I'm just going to be upfront with you now that I know. And, uh, you know, Chris saw me for me and, uh, it, it didn't matter if I had a felony cause that's not who I am. So. Right. Yeah. Well, Ashley, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, and sharing your story here. You know, I think it's it's so important for uh, people to be able to see um, people like yourself who've made some mm-hmm. mistakes, and you're working actively in your community for positive change now. And uh, you know, it's it's good for people to see you're a felon. And I think most people, when they think <laughs> yeah. of a felon, they don't think of somebody like you, you know? Um. No, no, not this like innocent girl. <laughs> most people would, uh, don't believe me when I tell them I do, but it is true. In fact, I have a felony and I'm still a productive member of society. I go to work every day, pay my taxes just like anybody else. And I work hard, but yeah. Right on. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. <laughs> Yes, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Okay, guys, hope you enjoyed today's show with Ashley Hunter. And what do you think? When you think of a a felon, when you think of uh, someone who's committed a felony and uh, you don't think of someone like Ashley Hunter, do you? That's not the image that pops in your mind, Um, at least if you're watching, if you watch the YouTube video today. Then you saw Ashley. She's not does not doesn't fit the uh, prototypical felon uh, profile. But I think it's important to realize there's a lot of people that don't fit that profile. And even if they do fit that profile, that's not a reason to pigeonhole them and and push them aside in society and not give them the opportunity to contribute and uh, add value to society. So I want to thank Ashley for coming on and sharing her story. You know, it's not easy for any of these people really to come on, put themselves out there, talk about mistakes they've made uh, and share about where they are today, which is which is the fun part. You know, it's fun to talk about um, and fun to hear about what they've overcome. That's that's the awesome part for me as a host. I love um, I love hearing about people's stories of overcoming obstacles, overcoming adversity and uh, coming out and really finding success after prison, success after stumbling, after mistakes, after addiction, um, really turning that corner. That's uh, that's motivating. That should be motivating for anybody, even aside from uh, looking at this from a criminal justice system or an addiction aspect. So I do want to shift gears for a minute here, and I want to talk about something that I think is very, very important. 
and it's been in the news. It started on August 21st. Of course, I'm talking about the prisoner strike. And when we look at this prisoner strike, of course, it was organized by the, I think it's the Jailhouse Lawyers Speak. I believe that's the name of it. And what they did, or what they have, I should say, is this was in response to riots at the uh, Lee Correctional Institute in South Carolina. I think that happened back in April, and seven inmates were killed. Essentially, they got stabbed and and bled out. They died from uh, from blood loss. And the reason that happened, and the reason there's so many people injured as well, is they couldn't get the prison under control. And the jailhouse lawyers speak what they're saying, what this coalition of prisoners is saying, is that the reason why this happened, one of the main reasons, is because of overcrowding. I mean, you have so many people in the system because of this mass incarceration, people being uh, in prison for nonviolent crimes, for drug crimes, things like that. So what they have is they have a list of national demands. We'll go through the demands first, then uh, we'll talk about some of the things that they're doing um, on this strike, and then I'll talk about some of the impacts and what I think about it as a whole, and if it's effective, and if it's something that people should support. So some of these demands here, they're looking for uh, really general improvements, conditions in the prisons. Uh, you know, they want prison policies that recognize the humanity of the imprisoned men and women. Second, uh, they want an immediate end to prison slavery. Of course, you know, they want to be paid and they say, they say a prevailing wage. I would rather that say a, a market wage for their labor. I think people, even when imprisoned, should be paid in exchange uh, f- for their labor. That's that's only uh, only fair. It's only just and right. They want repeal of the Prison Litigation Reform Act, and they want the Truth and Sentencing Act and the Sentencing Reform Act to be rescinded. And what's that, what that would do is give uh, all prisoners the possibility of rehabilitation and parole. So what their thought is, is no human being should ever be uh, really facing a sentence of death by incarceration. So where they're going to serve out their time without any possibility of ever getting out, ever getting parole. So that, that's what they said for their fourth demand. Their fifth demand, they want an end to uh, racial overcharging, oversentencing, parole denials of black and brown humans. Um, six, they want an end to the racist gang enhancement laws targeting black and brown humans. I'm not sure what that one means specifically. Um, seven, they want no imprisoned humans to be uh, you know, denied access to rehabilitation programs um, at their place of detention due to being labeled as a violent offender. I think that one's very important. Uh, eight, state prisons must be funded specifically to offer more rehabilitation services. Nine, Pell Grants reinstated for all U.S. states and territories. And 10, voting rights for all confined citizens, pretrial detention, detainees and so-called ex-felons after they're released from prison. So that's their demands. Um, What they're doing for this strike, they're doing work strikes. So they're encouraging prisoners not to report for assigned jobs at each of these, uh, you know, prisons, uh, detention centers. Uh, They're doing sit-ins in certain prisons. They're going to be engaging in peaceful sit-in protests. And they'll be doing uh, boycotts, halting spending, they're asking those outside the walls not to make financial judgments for those inside. And they're also going to be doing some some hunger strikes. They're going to be refusing to eat. So let's talk about really what I see. The, I mean, the reason behind this, I think it's fairly obvious. The prison system, the mass incarceration um, 
it's it's out of control in this country. Out of control is is an understatement. And you know, I think people will look at this, and I think the snap judgment reaction from people that oppose it is that they'll say something to the effect of, "Well, they're in prison, and they're in prison for a reason." So they should just, you know, stay locked up and take their punishment. It's not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be rough. It's supposed to be supposed to be tough. It's you're supposed to n- not like it, you know, things like that. And I think the measured response. Now, while I don't agree with everything, the the list of demands, you know, I don't agree with everything on it. Um, but I will say, I think it's very important. Um, number one, if you're sending someone to prison. What is the intention of sending them there? Now, there is a punitive element to it, but at the same time, unless it's a life sentence or unless they're sitting on death row, that person will be going back into society. So with the idea that you don't want a, you know, somebody who's angry and crazy and erratic and with no skills and uh, no goals, no future, no vision – you don't want someone like that going back in, into society, which is what we have right now. We have them go, people being released back in, into society in droves with no skill set. They're angry. The only contacts they have are people that met on the inside who maybe uh, taught them uh, different things, maybe taught them um, how to so- sell drugs, different connections uh, with, uh, with nefarious uh, individuals. So really, it's th- the reverse is happening. You're sending people to prison. You're getting a worse output coming out on the outside. So the people that would say it's supposed to be tough, it's not supposed to be enjoyable, well, you're setting up a public safety issue for not only that individual who's gone into prison, when they come out, they can't fend for themselves, they can't uh, they can't uh, feed their family, they can't add value to society. So the individual's getting punished, society's getting punished, and potentially it's a more dangerous situation for everyone involved because you've put this person in a violent environment and potentially uh, they could suffer from uh, emotional distress, mental illness of different types onset because of that environment. So I think it's common sense that you don't want to do that. So the question is, how do you get to a point where you're not doing that? How do you get good rehabilitation? List of demands they're talking about. They want to make things mandatory. They want to make uh, rehabilitation mandatory and, give more funding and access and things like that. So to put this simply, compared to the current system, yes, I like moving in that direction. I think it's good. Yeah, let's let's move towards a system where there's more rehabilitation and less insanity, less uh, just a freaking free-for-all with uh, basically just paper programs set up that really give – inmates no life skills let's move away from that and let's move to a uh, a system where people are getting rehabilitated what i would love to see though and i've had some guests who've come in on the past who have the, who, uh they have prison programs they have uh re-entry programs they've developed themselves in the private sector and they would love to get them into prisons i would like to see more of that i would like to see more from the private sector becoming involved i would love to see corporations companies entrepreneurs come involved to uh, help and partake in molding the training, uh, building skills, educating inmates in a way where they are investigating and where they are investing in their education and then are able to see a return by hiring these individuals when they come out. Um, I think that's the ultimate direction 
we want the criminal justice system to go into. Of course, along the way, you want to end the uh, war on drugs. You want to end mass incarceration of nonviolent offenders. You want to end all that crap. We want a more focused prison system focused on just violent offenders, people who have um, you know, murdered, raped, uh, th- things like that, things of that nature, violent crimes. I don't think there's any reason for a nonviolent person to go to prison. And some would say, well, they commit fraud. They steal money from all kinds of people. They should be in prison. Why? Why should they be in prison? They should be fined. They should have to pay those people back, restitution, damages, all that stuff. But how are they going to do that when they're in prison? They should be able to work to uh, to repay those fines um, from outside of prison. Putting them in prison is not going to help anybody. Uh, it's it's. I mean, the 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 uh, the fine the uh, is going to damage and uh, and harm that individual. That's what you want because they've stolen, they've defrauded someone. Putting them in prison helps helps no one. So. The other aspect of this, and it's obviously we want to move away from putting people in prison for drug crimes, nonviolent crimes, all that stuff, but they're in prison now. So that hasn't changed. So let's address the here and now. So the here and now, you have those nonviolent offenders in prison, and many of them are being forced to to work sometimes for, for free. They're not getting paid anything, or they're getting paid like pennies on the dollar. It's It's ridiculous. And this can range from jobs to them working in just a, a kitchen, something like that, or even going out and fighting forest fires. So the point of this being is this labor is exploited. It's exploited both by public government agencies and, uh, you know, for example, for, for fighting fires. And also there's corporations that partake in this labor. Um, off the top of my head, there's a couple I know I can't think of, though, right now. But there's definitely corporations that take advantage of this prison labor. And that's ridiculous. That, my friends, should be illegal. It's basically indentured servitude or slavery of some kind where you're taking advantage of these individuals. And that should not be permitted under any circumstances. So I can favor the prevailing wage. I can favor that. I would much more like at the end of the day to be more of a private system. So that would be the goal. That's what I would strive for. And that's how I feel about this prison strike. On the whole, I support it. I think it's good. I think we need more of a a message, a more principled message behind it. And hopefully I did a little bit to add some clarity there. That's all I'll say about about what's going on with the prison strikes. I want to thank you guys for listening. I really do appreciate it. And this is John Odermatt signing off. And, you know, I appreciate, as always, I appreciate you guys listening. Always remember to keep your head up. And the fires of liberty burning.